All right, James chapter 3, be in verse 13. Uh, and as we're turning there, let me say this, we wrestle with the same kind of interpretive question that we have each week when it comes to this passage, like all the passages before, and that is, how does this fit into the rest of the book? Uh, and commentators are actually divided on this. You have one school of thought that says, this is fleshing out <coughs> the council that was started last week to teachers, and then excuse me, another group, says that this is uh, just a continuation of what was said about the power of words, uh, and I think there's a, a little case to be made for either one of those. But the good news is, uh, no matter where we shake out on that, the net result is the same. Whether you want to be a teacher, whether you are someone with a mouth, which includes all of us, there is a word for us here about wisdom. And what James is really going to do here is he's going to <coughs> delineate for us Two different types of wisdom, uh, one that you might call wisdom from below, and the other which is wisdom from above, and he is going to go to great lengths to help us understand the difference between those two. He's going to use some very uh, emotive language to make that clear, and we'd be very wise to pay attention to what he has to say. Structurally, there's three parts here. There's an exhortation, which he's going to ask us an important question here in verse 13. Then there's going to be a little section... 14 to 16, uh, where he talks about this wisdom from below, and then 17 and 18 when he talks about the wisdom from above. So let's get after it. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? And so this is a common uh, rhetorical device to get the attention of the hearers, and the assumption is there are some out there who think that they're wise, but let's talk about what true wisdom actually looks like. And for the Greek mind, uh, the wisdom would have been about words and concepts and thoughts and ideas. It would have been very cerebral, very uh, intellectual in nature. But for the Hebrew mind, and of course this is going to be the biblical perspective on wisdom, uh, it includes that, but it goes beyond that. <coughs> and what James is going to care most about is wisdom in action the principles in progress in the lives of the people. And so if you want to really kind of wrap this passage up in one main thought, it would be this, that true wisdom is not just about what you know, but also what you show. True wisdom is not just about what you know, but also what you show. And the way that he fleshes this out is, is very fascinating because he says here, Anyone who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, when we hear meekness, what do we often think about? We think about weakness, <coughs> but that is not true. In fact, it's the opposite of true uh, when it comes to the Bible. In fact, Moses, one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history, uh, was said to be very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth, Numbers 12.3. Uh, Jesus himself talks about being gentle or meek and lowly in heart, Matthew eleven twenty nine, And so it doesn't carry with it any sense of cowardice or uh, spinelessness or even timidity or a peace at any cost attitude, but rather it is strength under control. Meekness is about strength under control. And so what James is getting at here is he's saying, if you want to be truly wise, show me that in real life. And as you show me that in real life, show it to me the right way with this meekness 
of wisdom. Now, after laying that foundation, verse 13, James turns the camera in verses 14 to 16, and he talks about this wisdom from below. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, a couple things to notice there. Let's start with these concepts of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So this is part of the evidence for he's talking to teachers primarily. And the thought there would be is there's this group of people that want to be uh, seen as wise, and they are the bee's knees when it comes to teaching the Bible and so on. And they are also sinning in some way in their heart that there's some obsession and frustration that someone else might be thought of as more... uh, more smart or more wise or whatever. And so he's speaking to that, and he's saying, listen, if that's what's going on in your heart, that's bad. We got to jettison that. And then this whole notion here, don't false, uh, don't be boasting and <coughs> false to the truth, what he's getting at there would be is that it could be that there could have been this idea that they were saying, my bad behavior is justified, my sin in my heart is justified because I really want to do this for God, and I want the gospel to advance, and so on and so forth. And he's saying, no, 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 you can't do that. Your passion, your zeal does not baptize your evil behavior, both inside and outside, and make it okay. And it's really interesting, this language that he uses here, bitter jealousy. (coughs) The word bitter is a word for undrinkable water, and when it's coupled with jealousy, it means a harsh, resentful attitude toward others. In this notion here of selfish ambition, it's one of antagonism and factionalism. It's actually often used for politicians at this time. And so whether he's speaking specifically to these teachers or if this is more of a general uh, gospel shotgun blast for all of us, the point is the same, that if we have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts, that is not consistent with the wisdom from above, but is the source and evidence of wisdom from below. So no matter who he's speaking to specifically here, this is a cease and desist order from the, from the Lord for this kind of behavior. And then he fleshes that out further. He says, This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And that language is very strong as well. Earthly means earthbound. It means that you are uh, evaluating yourself by the scoreboard of life. You are determining whether or not uh, something is good or true or right simply by the the world's standards of wisdom. Unspiritual (laughs) is very similar, but it kind of takes it a little bit further. Uh, Paul used this idea And it talks about uh, not accepting the things of the Spirit of God. And then finally, demonic pretty much speaks for itself, uh, but surely we do not want to be part uh, or party to anything coming from the enemy or playing into his hand. So it's almost like James is saying here is, if this stuff of awfulness is in your heart, it's giving evidence that you are walking in the wisdom of the world, stop it. And if you didn't hear me in saying that, let me tell you just how bad it is. And there's almost this descent to the devil here, uh, uh, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. 
And then if there was any question about whether or not we should continue in this practice, you get this final statement here, <coughs> for where selfish, or excuse me, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So what he's talking about here is basically chaos and confusion, that if you walk in this way, if you walk in the wisdom of the world, if you let this stuff run rampant in your heart, well, we know how this is going to come out. The enemy comes to steal and to kill and destroy, and that is what's going to happen. So it's almost as if, to use an image, <coughs> James is driving us into the graveyard of the wisdom of the world, and he is shining a spotlight on its decay and detritus, and he's saying, this is not what you want. You got to want something else. You got to want something better. And that's exactly <coughs> where he takes us here in verses 17 and 18. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, <coughs> then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. <coughs> and I think the actual uh, most important word in this section right here is actually the first one. It's pure. And that means spiritual integrity and moral sincerity. And the idea that is being uh, proclaimed here is that of moral purity. Uh, and it is the type of purity that we have when we become Christians. And the way this works is that Jesus makes us positionally pure, and then uh, by our own responding to Jesus, by learning the Word, by listening to good preaching, so on and so forth, that positional becomes more and more practical in daily life, that the Spirit of God works out that positional holiness in practical behavior uh, within us. And so he's saying here, we don't want to be about this wisdom from below, Here's how bad it is. We do want to be about the wisdom from above, and then he's going to lay out how good it is. And the first of these uh, apex principles, if you want to think of it that way, is that of purity. And it's interesting, the language that he uses here, it, it, if you want an image of this, purity is the north star for the rest of these principles that he's about to lay out. These behavior qualities, these characteristics, there's seven of them here, purity being the first. And it is the one that kind of governs all the rest of them, because if we are made pure in Christ and then pursuing purity in life, in word, in deed, then these other things are going to follow, and they also are a natural outworking of that purity. So one other way to think of it is like this, to use a, uh, a wedding dress analogy here. If we put on the pure, clean, white wedding dress uh, of meeting Jesus, then all of that, it's going to influence the rest of the wedding day. It's going to influence the rest of the wedding life. It is going to influence the rest of the behavior that follow. And you'll notice that there's some clear overlap here and great similarity to uh, what Paul talks about as the fruit of the Spirit, but the purity being the first one. Now, next, peaceable. That means peace-loving or peace-promoting. And uh, the idea here is this is someone that seeks to be a diffuser as opposed to an instigator. Uh, when I think about this, there's a, there's a guy in church history, St. Francis. Uh, some of us know St. Francis because supposedly he could talk to animals. 
Uh, not sure about that, but uh, he had some other good things to say, and there's this prayer that is attributed to him that really, I think, captures the essence of this character quality. It says this. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. And you know, you know what, what he's talking about there. You, you get around certain people, and you just feel calmed and helped in their presence. That you, You've been listening to shenanigans on the radio or the news all day long, and you just get around this one person, and you're like, man, I'm just so thankful that I'm not going to be in some kind of political debate or debacle when I'm hanging out with this person. We could just talk and be normal and just pretend like there aren't problems in the world, at least for 15 minutes. That essence of peace, that kind of attitude, shows the fruit of walking in the wisdom from above, okay? So it starts with purity. Uh, it leads to peaceable, peace-loving, peace-promoting. Next one is gentle. Now, we saw this one before. Uh, it was translated a little differently there, but it, it's the same kind of idea. It's a sweet reasonableness. It's a willingness to endure mistreatment. And the idea, uh, the Jerusalem Bible actually translates this as kindly, so very similar to that which came before. Next one. Open to reason, teachable, someone who follows God's word. This is the kind of person uh, 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 that, that they have an idea, they have an opinion, but if they get other information and they realize that opinion is wrong, they can pivot and they can go, oh, well, I thought this was what I was going to do, but now I have better intel. Nope, we're going to do something else. And that particular intel would be coming from God's Word. So the, the way I think about this, uh, and, and I think about this when it comes to, there's so many implications. This could be in, in dealing with uh, interpersonal situations. Uh, it could be in, in the workplace that there's just a reasonableness and a teachableness about the kind of person that is walking in this. Next, full of mercy, able to forgive quickly. So there's one aspect of mercy that when someone wrongs you, you show mercy to them by forgiving them quickly. But then the other aspect, uh, aspect of it is that when you look at mercy in biblical theology, it always ends in practical results. And what I mean by that is that we aren't just merciful in principle, we're merciful in practice. So just like we saw a couple of weeks ago when James was talking about orphans and widows and so on, you can't just believe that it is good to help out people when they are in need. We have to follow through and help out people in need. And so, again, that would be another uh, uh, example of someone who is walking in the wisdom from above. Now, next couple here, James puts uh, together impartial and sincere this means someone who doesn't make unfair distinctions. There's a steadiness here, uh, a non-vacillation here. It's not taking one position in uh, one circumstance and then being somebody different in another circumstance. There's a sincerity here and a desire to live without hypocrisy. And of course, like this one and all the others, these are what we want. They are aspirational. We are driving in that direction. But we're all going to fall down on the job 
in all of these principles, but the goal is when we do that we are continually going back to Jesus, we are repenting of our sin, we are looking to Jesus for help to grow in these areas, and then we are being more and more transformed into the image of Christ. But James is painting the target for us here. He is showing us this is what wisdom from above looks like in real shoe leather. It looks like impartiality and sincerity and being merciful and open to reason and gentle and peace-loving and most of all, pure. And that's the direction that we want to go. And so here in verse 18, James ties a bow on all of this. In uh, what many believe was a proverb that was being used uh, in his day. And it says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so the sense here is peacemakers produce within the atmosphere that they create the harvest or fruit of righteousness. So one way I think that we can think about this here as a church, we talk all the time purposefully about gospel culture within our community uh, it's a gospel greenhouse. It's a place where anyone can grow. It's a place that makes space for people, no matter where they are on their spiritual journey. It's a, and we point everyone to Jesus. And that kind of culture creates an environment where certain behaviors are encouraged, where we want to be about what James is talking about here. We want to be people that are known for being about the wisdom from above. And so I think at this point in the text, this is kind of where we ought to be. He's asked this question. He's got our attention. He's driven us to the graveyard and said, look at these dead bodies. You don't want to be about this. He's driven us to the other side of town, put us up on the hill and said, look at the greatness of what Jesus has to offer. And at this point, we ought to be saying, okay, how do I do that? How do I get in on that? How do I walk in this wisdom from above? And so that's what I want to take last few minutes here, and talk about. Just some very practical ways that we can put feet on what James is talking about. And I think the first one is we need to look within. We need to look within. And I don't mean that in any weird Eastern philosophy kind of sense. I mean that in the sense of looking at what's going on in our own hearts. The two sins that James illuminated here, the selfish ambition and the bitter jealousy— where is that at work? Is that at work? And again, this passage is not just for people who want to teach the Bible. Any of us could fall into this. We could be jealous about almost anything. We could be selfishly ambition, uh, ambitious about any sphere of our lives. And to see the destruction that this produces and the connection with wisdom from below, this is a flag on the field for us to stop the play and say, hey, Lord, where is this at work in my heart? Please forgive me, help me, change me, and put me on a better path. And I think it's also an opportunity to kind of go below that behavior, like we've been talking about this throughout the series. There's uh, all sin is an iceberg. There's the behavior on the surface, the tip of the iceberg, <coughs> and then there's these uh, under-the-water uh, things that are fueling that behavior. Why am I being... Uh, bitterly jealous and selfishly ambitious in the first place. And it is my experience that, let's take the jealousy, for example, there's usually some kind of gospel identity issue that is fueling that. If you are desperate to have 
what somebody else has, then in that particular area, it indicates that we have lost sight of what we already have in Christ. And we are seeking to make that thing our functional Savior instead of trusting in our actual Savior, which is the Lord Jesus. Put the shoe on the other foot. We're looking at selfish ambition. If we are desperate to be at the top of the food chain, the top producer, the biggest division, whatever it is, there's a good chance that it is because we have lost sight, again, of what we already have in Christ. That what we are seeking in that moment has departed from the truest thing about us, which is who we are in Christ. That we're beloved, that we're forgiven, that we're born again, that we're saved, that we have an inheritance, that we have a gospel family. All these things that are ours of being a part of what Jesus has given us. That in that moment, we're walking away for that because we're making this our functional Savior instead of trusting in the actual Savior. So again, this passage gives us an opportunity to see some change on the outside, but most importantly, change on the inside. Now, beyond that, <coughs> let's think about this. Where does this wisdom from above really come from? Okay? So uh, if you want to give this one as a second point of application... So if we look within, we need to look above. Look above. <coughs> and first, it comes from God's Word, and second, it comes from God Himself. I love what uh, the 119th Psalm has to say about this, this direct connection here. We'll pick it up, uh, verse 97 to 100. It says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. So, just to make that very practical, there is good wisdom available to us in the world. Uh, even folks who don't follow Jesus can say true things about finances and, and so many other things that, that, that we can be helped by. But we always need to consider the limitation of that source material. And what Scripture does is it doesn't just give us natural perspective. It gives us supernatural perspective. So as we learn from the wisdom of the world, and there, there's a lot to learn there. Calvin talked about this. You know, all truth is God's truth. Common grace has made many things known in the world. But we got to understand the limitation of it and say, but there is an un ununderstandable well of depth within the scriptures, and that's where we always need to turn. That's the well we need to keep going back to. That is the lens, the lens rather through which we evaluate the wisdom of the world, so on and so forth, and we need to keep the Bible at the front and foremost of our minds, and most importantly, our hearts, because that's how we're going to walk in this wisdom from above. I mean, honestly, that's what the Bible is. It's wisdom from above. And, and here's one thing that I love about the Bible as well. It doesn't just give us principles. It gives us a person. Remember when we talked about wisdom earlier back in chapter 1, and we, we, we remembered what Paul had to say about this when he's talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God 
who became to us the wisdom from God and a righteousness and a sanctification and a redemption. So the Bible doesn't just give us principles, it gives us a person. And so I would say the most important way that we can grow in our ability to understand and therefore live out the wisdom from above of which James is speaking here is we need to get to know Jesus. You want to be wise? You hang out with the wisest man who ever lived. And for some of us, <coughs> the way we need to apply this today is you need to come into a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you came in here this morning and you were like most of us uh, at some point in our lives and, and you have heard or confirmed in your own mind the best way for you to try to get to heaven is just be really good. Try to work your way there. Well, that's, that, that's very Western Makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Because the way we get to heaven is we recognize that our works are as filthy rags before God. And the work we need is the work of Jesus that is credited on our account. So if that was your plan this morning when you came in, you need to abandon it, and you need to admit that you're a sinner, you need to believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and you need to turn your life over to him. That's where this wisdom thing begins, coming into a relationship with the person of wisdom, Jesus. And then as you grow in that relationship, and this is where most of us are in this room are, we spend time reading the Bible to become wise. Also, here's another one. We pray and ask specifically for wisdom. Remember this back from chapter 1? James says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So we have the privilege each and every day, all day long, to talk to this person of wisdom. To say, Lord, I got to refinance my house. This is all very complicated to me. Please help me. Please lead me to the right people that I can trust that will give me good information on this. Lord, I got these two, three, four kids they seem to be in some constant rebellion against everything that is good and right in our home. They've tried to duct tape me to the wall a couple of times. Lord, we need your help. Please help us in these moments. You find yourself in other situations where you don't know what to do at work. Those are all opportunities to go back to the person of wisdom and say, Lord, help me. And you know what he's going to do in those moments? He's not going to shake his head. He's not going to go, man, I wish that you would just figure it out. I'm working on something else on the other side of the world here. Good luck. Instead, he's going to listen. And he is going to supernaturally, in ways sometimes that we understand and in other times we don't, help you. His ear is always open. His heart is always toward you. And you just need to ask for his help. And then the final thing that I would say here, if we want to walk in this wisdom from above, and one of the ways that Jesus helps us is by putting us around other people that are seeking to be wise as well. Remember Proverbs 13, 20? That's what it says. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So if you want to know what to do in these situations... Take advantage of the people around you that have already walked those roads, that have probably made some mistakes in those ways. Benefit 
from their experience, from their wisdom. Because one of the ways that God cares for us is through His church. It's through wise people that can speak truth into your life. Now, let's bring all this together. And where does this indeed all come together? It all comes together in Jesus in the gospel. Let's go back and think about this passage very briefly. That first verse, who is wise and understanding among you? How can we read that question and not think about the Lord Jesus? The most wise and the most understanding man who ever lived. How about this next one? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. How can we see that and not think about the good conduct and the meekness of the Lord Jesus? That he lived every moment of his life in absolute perfection, never a wrong thought, never a wrong deed. He was the embodiment of this. He fleshed this out in a way that now makes it possible for us to live in that direction. We should marvel at that. We should stand in awe of that. And then when you think about 14 to 16 here, this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the heart, this boasting and being false to the truth, Jesus never did that. In fact, Jesus died for all the times that we do that. And this this earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom, this disorder in every vile practice, Jesus' kingdom is antithetical to that. He wants peace and harmony and love, and he wants people walking in light and life, not in the cemetery of this darkness. And then finally, When you think about 17 and 18 and these character qualities of walking in wisdom from above, purity, peaceableness, gentleness, openness to reason, being full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, how can we not remember the character of the Lord Jesus? That he was the very embodiment of all of that. And now we get to experience a harvest of righteousness sown in peace because he has made peace with God for us. We can experience peace with God because of the perfection of Jesus in all these ways. So here's how I hope this text lands on us today. I hope that it is illuminating in the sense that we see some of the folly that we've been caught up in this week. And we repent of it. That we are convicted by the Spirit, but we experience the consolation of the Spirit and say, Jesus, forgive me, help me. And at the same time, we are drawn in. Drawn in like a moth to a flame to the greatness and the glory of the Lord Jesus and all that he was and his perfection in these areas and the kind of life that he makes available to us when we will live in his strength with his purpose. So here's how I want to end. I want to take just a moment to pray and put these things before the Lord and ask for his help. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't want to live in this cemetery. We want to live 
on the top of the hill where the sun is shining with a clear view of who you are and the kind of life that you have made possible. Lord, forgive us. Help us in these areas where we fall so short. And Lord, remind us of the greatness and the glory of who you are and that you never fell short in these areas. That you were the embodiment of all of this wisdom from above. And that if we spend time with you and as the Spirit works within us, some of these qualities are they're going to rub off on us. We're going to walk in greater wisdom. We're going to make better decisions. People will be drawn to us to ask for counsel. Because it will be obvious that something different is going on in our lives. Something that is beyond natural wisdom. That has a supernatural appeal to it. Lord, we can't do these things on our own. You have to do them. But we thank you that you are trustworthy and that you will. So we look to you as the author and the finisher of our faith, and we ask for your continued help in these and all areas. And we pray all these things. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.